Happy Father's Day again to those of you that are fathers. Uh, and I just want to say, you know, or Happy Father's Day to those of you yeah, who are wishing your, your fathers um, Happy Father's Day. But some of you, for some of you, it's not a happy day. Uh, for some of you, some of you have, um, you just have bad fathers. And I guess as a preacher of God's word and as a Christian and as, yeah, I just want to say um, that this is the reason we're here is that Christ has provided us a way to have a good father to have his father, who is, the, as Bubba said many times, the perfect father. And so measured against him, we're, we're sinful, we err, we don't love, we're impatient. He is long-suffering and patient, fully loving and just and good and true. And he has brought us into, he has given us a way to, to bring us into fellowship with him and to have the same exact relationship with him that his own only son, Jesus, has and being adopted through him. So in the name of the Father, I want to wish all of you happy Father's Day, uh, good earthly father or not. And I, I think my dad's in Sojourn Kids this morning, which is unfortunate. It was not well planned <laughs> by the lead pastor. But dad, if you're watching through Periscope and you're uh, working security right now, I want to say I'm thankful for you as a father. Um, you're not perfect. No one is. I'm, not, I'm far from perfect as a father. I shake my head at myself almost daily, how I lose my temper and don't appreciate my kids and lead them and just discipline them like I should, but dad, you're a good father, and that's a real gift, and so I just want to say, so thank you for being that, and I want to say, if you have a, a father um, that you can appreciate it all, tell them how much you do appreciate them, what a, what a gift, so that's that, okay, um, a couple other quick announcements, um, I won't make that one today, yes, the Browns, okay, here you are, I want to just celebrate uh, James and Madeline, they were here last week serving in kids, so we, we kind of forestall that announcement, but they were married two weeks ago or so, and they're back from their honeymoon, and man, we're so happy to have the Browns with us this morning, so I just want to, yeah, welcome. Uh, yeah, it was just a great event, got to be a part of that and got to celebrate with them, and we're really glad that you're uh, married now and past the wedding phase and into the marriage, marriage phase, and so we walk with you, and we're glad that you're part of this family, so with a much shorter drive uh, to come worship this morning. And Ashley's not here either. Yes, she is. Ha-ha. Perfect. So I just wanted to also forestall that announcement. I think some of you got in the email this past week. But Ashley Ferran, we just hired her. Um, such a blessing to be able to do so as our children's director. And so I think we've already seen a big difference in just two weeks. She's just a hard worker. She loves the kids. And I'm just so excited to have. We've gone from a staff of one, yours truly, to a staff of three, Paul, me, and Ashley now in the past two months. And so I'm just very thankful for her. And want to welcome her to the staff and in a new way to the church family. So thank you. So excited. Um, our kids' ministry is, uh, everyone, everyone has been, in, almost everyone in this room has been volunteering in one way or the other. And so many have done, like uh, my sister-in-law, Anna, much more than has ever been required of them. And so we're so thankful for that. But and there's a sense in which we've been keeping our heads above water. And we know that it's one of our most important ministries, uh, ministering Christ to our children. And so we're excited to go beyond keeping our heads above water and really build for the future. So I'm um, really excited about Ashley. And finally, and maybe most importantly, certainly most seriously, I just want to take two or three minutes just to make an announcement and pray before I start my sermon. Um, so Paul was our second hire. He's, in a sense, an associate pastor here. He's a, a church planter in, resident, in residence, um, but really acting like a 
in a lot of ways like a pastor. He leads worship. He preaches some. He's preaching at Heights this morning, all three gatherings. You may know this, but his wife, Lindsay, who's with him, no doubt, although she may be with her family now, she has a brother called Peyton in Louisiana, where she's from. And on Friday night, some of us got a text, those of us in her parish, that she, uh, Peyton had an accident. And I'm telling you this because I want to pray in a second. I want to marshal. I, I recommended to him that he marshal all the people at Heights to pray because God hears prayers. And so I think he's doing that, and I'm, I'm going to do that here. But the short of it is that he's in Louisiana, her brother Peyton. He's towing a camo, a camouflaged boat behind him. It comes, it's nighttime. It's Friday night. It comes off the trailer. He pulls over to manage it. And because it's camo and he's on a street in Louisiana with no lights, I and mean, that's scary right there, right? Um, somebody plows into the back of his boat, totals their car, totals his boat. He jumps, thankfully, on the other side of the railing to get away from the wreck, and he did, but the problem is he was on an overpass, and he did not realize this, and he fell. It, they, she said in the text 100 feet, there's no way, but a lot of feet, maybe 20, 30, maybe more, uh, down to his surprise and, and ends up that he, cr- he broke some vertebra, he crushed his left foot. He's well in other senses, but there's still questions about his long-term mobility. So there's a lot of praise based on the first thing that we got, but there's still a lot um, that needs to happen. So can we pray for Peyton? I'm going to lead us. Can you pray with me for Peyton real quick? Um, Paul's brother-in-law. So Lord, we just lift up Peyton. We lift up his family. We lift up Lindsay. I pray that she could be a light and a comfort, and carry your peace there to her family and her brother right now. I pray that you would, if he's not saved, uh, that you would save him, that you would come to him in your gentleness and in your power. You would draw him to yourself, that you would show him your beauty, show him that you love him, that you laid your life down for him. Lord, I pray, uh, Lord, that you would heal him, that you would touch him, and just make his vertebra well, that you would make his foot well. Uh, You are the great healer. You're the great physician of our souls and of our bodies. You're the resurrected Lord and King, and so we honor you, and we beg you Lord, to just intervene. We thank you for preserving his life. We pray that you would save a lot of souls through this, that this would impact his life. He'd never forget it, and it would literally leave a mark on him. We pray that it, uh, maybe like Jacob, Lord, that it would, as he wrestled with you and it left a mark on him where he limped after that. We're not praying for a limp, Lord, but that he would have a sort of spiritual limp and a humility and a, and a gratitude uh, and a sense of your, the reality of your presence in a way that he will never forget, and that you would um, be glorified through that. So we pray blessings over Peyton, over his family. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So I want to talk about this hard text this morning. It's what I get to preach, the cancer within. That's what I'm going to title this sermon, the cancer within. During the Spanish Civil War, General Emilio Mola marched on a city, says one commentator. He was asked how many columns of men he had. Five, he is said to have replied, four at my back and a fifth column inside the walls. His reference to the partisans ready to fight for him inside the siege gave rise to a powerful image of betrayal and enmity. The fifth column. The fifth column. Peter's contention this morning is that although the church is buffeted from the outside, her greatest weakness comes from the enemy within, from her own fifth column. And that's what Peter's talking about this morning. He's talking about false teachers inside the church. People who look, they look, just like a true Christian, just like someone who is born again. Um, But they are far from God, and they lead people astray, and they are a cancer, they are a poison, they are gangrene, they are a sickness, and they will defile many. And Peter says, beware of false teachers, flee from them. Um, So let's talk about point one, the cancer within, for a little bit here. Um, Peter starts off the text by saying, there will be 
false prophets among you. Not there might be, not there might be false prophets among you. Church of God, the redeemed of Christ, through no good of your own, through the blood of Jesus, through his death and his life in your place, you will have false prophets among you. If you don't already, they, they will come. They have come in the past, and he spends a good amount of this text talking about how they've come in the past. The Old Testament chronicles a lot of that, and they're gonna come in the future, so be ready for them, beware. What will they be like? He says, verse one again, they'll bring in, secretly bring in, destructive heresies. So it's their secret. They're not, gonna, they're not gonna walk in the doors and say, hey, guess what? I'm a heretic, so watch out. That's not the way they work. They're a grenade hidden in the hand with the pin already pulled, and they're just waiting to, to roll it under the chairs. Um, and it's gonna blow, and it's gonna do damage. Uh, they're unobtrusive a lot of times. They're winsome. They're angels of light. They're cloaked as angels of light. One Puritan says, the devil turns himself into an angel of light that he may more effectively lead us into darkness. Why is he so effective? Because often he looks so appealing and we just follow, right? That's the way his servants are. He goes on, if he were to come like a devil, like an enemy, everyone would be shy of him. But he comes disguised and he puts on the face of a friend and so tricks and cheats us. And this, this Puritan, Venning, Ralph Venning, goes on to talk about the devil, the serpent's encounter with Eve in Genesis 3. Perfect Eve, perfect Adam, sinless. In a sense, the highest of the creatures of God made in God's image. And the serpent comes, and he comes craftily, and he comes appealingly, and he appeals to Eve, and he engages her in conversation. And everything that he says seems, here's the word, plausible. So don't think that you're just going to be able to easily spot these things. That's why this chapter is in the Bible. It's important. It's important for us to go this is what we need to look out for in the church. You need to be looking at me. You need to be looking at your other future teachers as we start equipping classes and also, as I'll unpack in a bit, at one another and even out, outside the church as well because we imbibe teaching. We imbibe, we drink up, we lap up things from our culture that we don't see as lies but that poison us and can lead us into a very, very bad place. Um, so, yeah, Satan didn't come up to Eve and with, you know, with a, a pitchfork and and red tights, and you know, obviously that's not the way he looks, but is a hideous mo- a demon that he is, um, the, the father of all lies. No, he came enticing. He came enticing. In fact, verse 15, they entice. Verse 18, they entice. Verse 13, they deceive. Verse 12, they lead, verse 2, excuse me, they lead astray. So why does Satan have to candy coat sin and heresy and false teaching? Why does he have to dress it up? Because he knew that if we saw it for what it actually is, guys, we'd, we'd run from it. So he candy coats it. I, I went to Montana on an all-expenses fly fishing trip a couple weeks ago. Yeah, feel sorry for me. It was, it was terrible, suffering for Jesus. Um, it was a great trip. And, you know, the whole, we're fishing for trout the whole time, and what are we doing? We're baiting our hooks. We're baiting our hooks because the fish are fairly smart. And if you throw a, a hook in the water... No fish, no self-respecting fish, no fish probably is going to bite that hook. So what do you do? You make it look tasty. You put stuff on it that looks like the real thing or is the real thing. And man, you wiggle it and you do all these things, right? And sure enough, you get bites. And that's exactly what Satan does. If we knew that the stuff that he's putting in front of us, the destructive heresies, the falseness, the false teaching, the sinful sort of things that we imbibe in the culture, if he knew that Uh, If we knew that those were hooks that are going to lead to our being yanked out and gutted 
and fried up for dinner, which, by the way, was catch and release, so don't report me, okay? I'm just using it as an illustration. Then we wouldn't, we wouldn't bite, but he makes it look tasty. So don't think, hey, just because it feels right, and I'm going to hammer feels right in this sermon. I'm going to hammer it because Peter does. Um, don't think just because it feels right. You hear that all over. It feels right. Go with my heart. Are you kidding me? That is so satanic. He, it's, God is the God of all pleasure, but man, Satan is going to reel us in with that, and he has so many of us already, or he's on his way. So this Puritan venting goes on. He says, now this disguise and subtle transformation proves that sin is an ugly and monstrous thing. Why otherwise is the devil painted up? And I want to ask you, you just think about, you know, just to land something, pornography. Again, we, you know, those of us who have looked at it, who, can, who continue perhaps to try to refuse it or are addicted to it or whatever, whatever uh, spectrum you're on there, or a lust, lusting after a woman or a man or whatever, a lustful thought, man, it looks good. It feels great for a little while. Why else would we bite that hook? But man, does it not reel you in? Have you ever, after indulging in something like that, thought, man, that was fantastic. I'm so glad I did that. No. It's like the opposite of going to the gym. You never want to go, but after you do, it's hard, but it's good for you, and you leave thinking. I've never le- left thinking, man, I wish I hadn't done that. But I almost always go thinking, golly, I don't want to do this. Sin is the opposite. Satan makes it look tasty, and it hooks you. Self-pity, not just to look at you know, the lust of the eyes, pornography, but self-pity. It, it seems so tasty, and it can be for a while. Pride. I mean, nothing feels better for a little bit than looking down on everybody else. But man, it'll hook you. You know, Satan will reel you in. So he says, verse 2, they're sensual. Again, how do these false teachers look? They're sensual. Harold Brown, one of my old professors, um, in a book, The Sensate Culture, he takes from this guy, Piterim Sorokin. And Sorokin writes about, in a book that was written in the 40s, actually, three societal phases. He does historical research, and he says, basically, societies, free societies go through three phases, the ideational, the idealistic, and the sensate phase. The ideational is willing, he says, to sacrifice pleasures and immediate goals for the sake of high principles. The idealistic is a bridge between the ideational and the sensate, but it has a lot in common with the ideational. The sensate is the opposite of the ideational culture. It's a culture driven by the senses, that which can be tasted, touched, and seen. Brown writes, it seeks the imposing, the impressive, the voluptuous, it encourages self-indulgence. I'll never forget one of our presidents at some point a while ago saying, we just need to spend our way out of this crisis. <laughs> I mean, wow. That, this, is, this is the, even, even from the top person in the nation, this is from top to bottom uh, just one of, the, one of the motifs of our culture, okay? Um, self, it encourages self-indulgence. A huge oil canvas such as Rubens, the drunken Hercules, is a representative work of sensate art. Virtually all glossy magazine advertising is sensate, appeals to the senses. I'm not saying all glossy magazine advertising is evil. I'm saying it's sensate, okay? Uh, no, it's, 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 the, it's the currency of our culture. No apology is made for encouraging people to squander their resources on self-indulgence. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, uh, Brown says, quoting the scriptures, forgetting that tomorrow we die. He traces Sorokin's line of thought to argue that we are, no surprise, in the sensate phase as a culture, and that the sensate phase is the, it's the death rattle. It's the death rattle of any culture or civilization. Um, it's a historical judgment. It's the way that previous civilizations have arced and faded. Egyptian, Mesopotamian, Greek, Roman, 
and now modern and postmodern Western. How, how else uh, are these false teachers characterized? He says, indulge in lust and passion. They don't fight it, but instead they roll around in it. They roll it around in their tongues. I can live as I please mentality. Uh, what I feel is right, to kind of circle back to that, I'll keep pounding on it. Follow my heart. I'm free to be me. Let me, free to, let me be free to be me. Don't tread on me. So these are the signposts of our age, and these are the signposts of a sensate culture, and this is what marks these kind of teachers, okay? So as we think about them inside, this church, the American church, and outside as well, working their way into the church by infiltrating our minds and hearts, right? So a New York Times article this week entitled, If You're Asking, Am I Gay, Lesbian, Bi, Trans, Queer, Here's a Start, I'm quoting, psychological, psychiatric, medical professionals are now much more aware this is from the article, and enlightened than they were in the past, not to pathologize variation, but just to see it as normal and to help people adjust. The leap from something feels not right to I am transgender is a huge one. The big question is, am I happy, the, the author says. Do I feel good? Do I feel at ease? Embracing fluidity is more about characteristics that aren't gender specific. It's incredibly liberating for some sexual minorities to describe themselves beyond the three labels of lesbian, gay, or bisexual. When seeking a partner, male or female, is pretty immaterial. And finally, among the most damaging myths, he says, are that being a sexual minority or transgender is a sin. He calls it a myth, calls it liberating, rather, to jump into all that. Peter says to us that this is the road not to life, it's a lie, and it leads to death in the church in, in a culture um, that shouts out to us, this is the way, but it leads only to destruction, that God actually stores up for the wicked. And Peter in this text is just warning us, flee from the wrath to come. Now let me pause real quickly after saying that and say this. Um, we need to speak against sin, both external, internal, both falling into a ditch and pursuing uh, active, an active gay or heterosexual sexual lifestyle outside of marriage. We also um, need to welcome the sinner. So on the right, you might have more of the speak out against sin. That's there the problem, the decay of society. On the left, you might have more of an embrace of the sinner, a welcoming of the sinner. And actually, we need to be a congregation, Peter's saying, that both does not fall off the horse on one side or the other, as it's so easy to do. We speak out against sin, especially the sins of culture that are popular. If you find yourself, okay, if you're young, here's, here's how we know what our, our, um, where our cultural moment is right now. If you're young, chances are you probably are cringing as I'm reading this stuff and you're knowing like I'm, he's going to speak out against homosexual, homosexual activity, okay? That's not, that's something that the scripture clearly does from start to finish, but we who are young in this postmodern sort of millennial um, milieu, we, even if we think that the Bible's clear on that, we don't want to offend anyone and we certainly don't want to not be welcoming and so we pretty much stay silent on it. If you're old, you're going to be saying, yay, but then as soon as I say, but we need to, and this is a, car uh, this is, this is a, uh, a caricature. You, you, might, you may be on the opposite, okay? Um, but that's, that can tend to be fairly true, just based on our age. So right there we know we're imbibing culture right there. If we just have different reactions based on how old we are, okay? What the scripture says is denounce sin in any form. God hates it. He will judge it. And at the same time, be a, a body, be a people who are so welcoming to sinners, 
both notorious sinners and people that walk in the door because they're sinners too. We are all sitting here. It's the first thing we say every Sunday. We are a bunch of sinners. It's why we're here. We need Jesus. He is the sinner savior. He came for sinners. We need to be a church that speaks out where the Bible speaks out against sin and trumpets Christ and says, come to the savior. We are, come join us. A people that is welcoming of people that are, and let's say, to use this example, an active homosexual lifestyle, welcoming, loving, the most welcoming and loving people they've ever met, and yet saying, that's not God's best for you, it leads to death, brother or sister. And speaking out to each other against our own sins as well, okay? Not to presume that, there's, that those sins aren't being embraced or thought about here in this, in this very body. So that's where Peter leads us, and that's where we need to be. Um, he goes on, they're bold and willful, he says. These false teachers, they're brazen. They have no sense of respect. They have no submission or fear of authority. So I immediately think of the Christopher Hitchens, um, his book, God is Not Great. Just when I think brazen and unsubmissive and just shaking your fist at God and his law and his way and his gospel, God is not great. Just laughing at the very idea of God and anyone who would be so foolish as to believe in one. Um, Hitchens is dead. He died. Um, I wonder what does he think about his position that he held so tenaciously now. I wonder, and I tremble for him. Um, but that is, especially in Britain, but also here, it, it can be the mentality of the educated, of the social and cultural elite, and it's poisonous. Um, a bold and willful disregard of God and his ways. Proverbs 14 a wise man fears and departs from evil, but the fool rages. What does the fool look like? Let me tell you what he looks like. He rages and is confident. I mean, confidence is one of the chief virtues of our culture. Confidence and tolerance. We are a sensate culture. Brown says, like, they're like eunuchs being proud of being castrated. They're like eunuchs proud of being castrated. Um, verse 14, they have adulterous eyes. They're, they may be saying great things and winsome and appealing on the outside, but they're just surveying, l lusting with their eyes in their hearts, looking around with adulterous eyes. Um, you know, again, back, think, circle back to pornography. I'm going to talk about it a lot because it's around, it's everywhere, and a lot of us struggle with it, and it is a gateway drug. Can we talk about a gateway drug? Let's talk about pornography. Okay, so he, he labels this as something that God is going to crush, he's going to judge. Don't be associated with it. Um, they're never satisfied, verse 14 again. Um, so much sin, it's never enough. Just this much and no more. That's never the attitude of sin. Sin wants more and more and more. It's voracious. It's unsatisfied. Um, one commentator says, while men seek to quench the thirst of sin by giving it salt water to drink, they only increase it. So indulging in sin is like drinking salt water when you're thirsty. It just makes you more and more thirsty. Ever been satisfied on a porn binge again? Ever been satisfied in self-pity? Ever been satisfied just indulging in envy or pride, arrogance? No, it doesn't. It does the opposite. It, does, it leaves you miserable and wanting. And that we go back like a dog to his vomit, like he closes the passage saying. We go back like a sow to the mud. They're slaves. So slaves, they have no freedom, but they, they're slaves who promise freedom. So they, they promise things in their teaching and in their lifestyles, but they don't have themselves. They don't possess. Watch out for that. If, I, if I'm preaching about joy and peace, Jesus says, by your fruit, by their fruit, you will know them. If I'm preaching and teaching, if our teachers among us are preaching and teaching, if those that we're listening to on podcast are preaching and teaching, if the leaders out in our society 
that we're listening to, people on TV, whatever, are preaching and teaching something, but their lives aren't showing fruit that you want to follow, and their lives are instead, of, instead showing a wake of destruction, flee. Run from that fool. Run from that fool and cover your ears and go find a people who are full of the fruit of the Spirit, of what you, of what, look for humility, look for peace, look for kindness, look for these things that, look for love. Um, not a permissiveness, but a true self-sacrificial Christ-like love. And of course, when we look to Jesus, we see that very thing. He most condemns sin and he most welcomes the sinner. That's what we want to be identified by. Um, they will exploit you with, oh, sorry, they're greedy. ESV Study Bible says false teachers throughout history have been marked by sexual sin, a lust for money, and dishonesty. All such teachers face condemnation and destruction. And it brings to mind James's warning in the book of James, Jesus' half-brother, let not many of you be teachers. You will incur a stricter judgment. And Peter just says, man, these, not only are these teachers going down, but God is reserving a special destruction. He's storing it up. Can you imagine? He's storing up destruction for them, just piling it away. And they think because... Some people think, oh, because they're prospering, because they have prospering ministries, God's asleep, God doesn't care, God's actually rewarding. Peter says the exact opposite. He's actually storing up destruction for them. They will exploit you with their false words. Excuse me, verse 3. I think of the peace in our time, as far as exploiting you with false words, the peace in our time speech by Neville Chamberlain, who was at that time the prime minister in 1938 of Great Britain. As he stepped off the plane after having just met with Hitler and Hitler's leaders in the Munich Accord in the Munich Conference, 30th of September, 1938. Um, he, this is the next day. He said, my good friends, to a crowd right outside of Downing Street, I believe, my good friends, for the second time in our history, a British prime minister has returned from Germany, bringing peace with honor. I believe it is peace for our time. And then he said this, go home and get a nice, quiet sleep, why don't you? He didn't say, why don't you? Go home and get a nice, quiet sleep. Go home and get a nice, quiet sleep. And, of course, we know the rest of the story. Uh, Hitler was already, I almost said Satan. Hitler was already, and Satan threw him, um, ravaging uh, countries around Germany. And with, within less than a year, uh, Great Britain would declare formal war, along with the rest of the West, essentially, on, uh, on Germany and her allies. This is what Peter says the false prophets prophesied in the Old Testament in Jeremiah's time, in, in Peter's time, in our time. Think of the health, wealth gospel, something that leads people astray, that sounds great, that pledges, go home, get some sleep. Uh, it's something that tickles our ears. It's something that feels nice to us. Your best life now. Man, I asked a friend, why do you go to X church in Houston? And he said, I just feel so good when I go. I just come out smiling. And man, that's fantastic to a degree. But man, if that's the reason, if that's the chief reason that we're going uh, to worship, and to be with a body of believers and to join up, we need, Peter says, beware. Beware. It's a hook and it's baited. Um, this is not a happy message, but it is one that is full of hope and that is full of help and that helps us to see things as they truly are. Um, it's not a soul-destroying message as these kind of health, wealth, lives are. Um, they'll tell you what they want to tell you to support their lavish lifestyles, don't believe them. The truth confronts. It often is not what we want to hear. You know, you, a lot, often if you're a good parent, you tell your kids what they don't want to hear because you love them, because you care about how their lives and their souls end up. Now, the truth confronts. The truth often hurts, and the truth heals. 
it offers the opportunity for healing. Um, the truth alone saves. Feeling good and staying on that path exclusively will send you straight to hell, but it'll be a gradual path that's easy, whose door is wide, and that is nice and soft underfoot. I would say the opposite. If it feels good, don't do it. If it feels good, put up, question it. Remember, imagine Peter shouting at you, whoa, whoa. I, this isn't in the text, but as I'm saying this, I remember I was in, uh, I was in the British Virgin Islands. I was scuba diving with a friend and his dad, and we were, it was just peaceful, and we were underwater, of course, and everything was so beautiful. And I remember this almost nice sort of current drift thing that was sort of rocking, almost rocking me to sleep. It was so peaceful, I couldn't hear a thing. But turns out that thing that was lo- almost lulling me to sleep was this, this current under the water that was pushing all of us close to the, it was a rocky, it was a rocky sort of cliff. And the rocks were really jagged, sort of coral-like. And I, I was totally quiet, and all of a sudden I looked up, and I was kind of almost past the point of no return because that tie was real strong, and I looked behind me, again, totally silent, and my friend and his dad were behind me going, you know, flailing as much as they could, and they couldn't get, come grab me because they would have gotten uh, washed into the rocks, but so I, 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 my, my heart jumped, and I thankfully got out of there, but that's what Peter's doing. As we were being sort of lulled and driven quietly with full enjoyment to the rocks, Peter's behind us going, watch out for these teachers, watch out for these Watch out. Stay in the Word. Stay together. Continue to, be, to meditate on it day and night. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. Who are these cancerous imposters? Surprise, they are among us. Verse 1, right there in verse 1 at the beginning of the passage, Peter says, they arose, these false teachers arose, who they will arise, and they arose among the people. They have and they will. Um, he says some tough things here. God is their master. He says, the word here, though, is despotes, which you know the word, we get the word despot from that, rather than the normal kyrios, which is translated Lord from the Greek. So he doesn't say God is their Lord. He says God is their despot. He's their master, okay? It's used 30 times in the New Testament. It never refers to God as mediator or savior. It's used uh, in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 32, do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Moses speaking to Israel. Is not he your father who has bought you? There's the word. He has made and established you. So these people are owned by God. He's their master, but they're not redeemed. They're in a special relationship with God, but they're not in a saving one. They, Hebrews 6 talks about these people. They're among us. They receive a lot of the benefits from being in the part of the covenant community. A lot of times we can't tell them apart just in the way they look day to day. If we could... They don't come in with a megaphone. If we could, then we would wake up if we're one of them, or we would preach the gospel to them or get them out if they're not going to repent and convert. Um, but they look like us. They have a form of godliness, but d- they deny its power, 2 Timothy 3, 5. Um, verse 20 says, in this text says, they know Jesus. That's scary. They know Jesus, and yet destruction is being reserved for them. It reminds me of Matthew 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus um, has this pack of people that come to him at the end of time as he's the Lord who has conquered all and is the judge. And he says, they say, Lord, hey, good to see you again. We've been following you all our lives, essentially. Uh, they've cast out demons. They've done power ministry. They, uh, they know all the right things to say. There's been 
they've done a lot of things, power ministry, but they perform miracles. They've had Christ on their lips. Again, they know, they know Christ. They know the drill. They were among us. And yet, what does Jesus say to them? He says, away from me. I mean, the most frightening, the most harrowing words maybe in the scriptures. I pray that none of us ever hear them. Away from me, I never knew you. There's a sense in which the important thing is that, as Lewis says, not that we know Christ, but that he knows us in a saving relationship, okay? Let's look at this a little bit more closely, so because this is so important. So the question is, does he know you? You know, the false teachers elsewhere in the scriptures are described, what, as wolves in sheep's clothing. They don't come in, you know, looking around where we're a bunch of sheep. They don't come around with fangs snapping through the door. If they did, we would scatter. They come in looking just like a sheep. They come in looking just like a sheep, but what? Inwardly, in the invisible part, the relationship they have with Jesus is external. It's not internal. It's not real. It's not life-changing. It's not an exchange that's happened that's made them a qualitatively new person. There's none of that. It's all form. It's all religion. And they come in ravenous on the inside, looking for people to devour. They will devour you. How will they do it? Okay, let's just break it down two ways chiefly. The teaching, as we've talked about, that will appeal to your senses and your vanity, if it always feels good coming from a teacher, man, you should run fast and far. Okay? Um, You should be checked a good amount when you're sitting under scriptural teaching. Your lifestyle, your pride, your ego, your vanity, the ways that we in our flesh constantly going astray should be checked constantly by the word of God. Um, And we should constantly be reevaluating in line with who God is as revealed through Jesus Christ and his gospel. Um, There should be a constant call to repentance. So they appeal to our vanity, our senses, but also um, there's a Jesus plus theology, which also is an appeal to vanity and control. Like Jesus plus is basically, hey, there are certain things you can do to get in God's favor. Just make sure your life looks like this or that. Like, no, the gospel is, no, it's as we've been singing, it's Christ alone. It's his life in our, way, in our place. It's his death in our place. We deserve what he took. Look to him and him alone and be saved. There's no room there for vanity. It's all, I can't do it. He's done it for me. But then after we come into that life-saving relationship with him, we're united to Christ, our lives show fruit. We still fall. We still sin every single day. But part of what, how we show that we are his flock, is that we admit that we're sinners and we repent and we need him and we look to him. Um, You can know about Jesus. You can know about Jesus. You can have perfect theology. None of us do, but you could. I mean, ideally, hypothetically, you could have perfect theology. You could have the Bible memorized. Some teachers in Jesus' day did, in fact. They had the whole Testament memorized. This, none of this saves you. You can believe that Jesus was and is and will come again and remain dead as a doornail. You can believe Jesus died. Doesn't matter. You can believe Jesus dies and it not matter. Let me say it that way. Satan believes Jesus died. Satan was there watching and celebrating. He believes in that sense more than you do. But he will never be saved. He will never rest on Christ. He will never trust in Christ. He will never look to Christ. Um, it's not enough to know about Jesus. God calls us to know him through his son, Jesus Christ, to know Jesus, to be in relationship with him. Um, verse 21, 
Peter says again something that just assaults us. He said it's better for the unbeliever. Get, get this. It's better for the unbeliever than it is for this type of person who had so many of the benefits, who came in close, and then who's found out to be a false teacher, who ends up turning away and trying to come back. Peter says, it's better for the unbeliever than it will be for this person. They, have, they will have the worst type of judgment stored up. And this kind of language actually peppers the whole Bible. But why are we surprised by it, if we are? I think it's because we basically have two categories in the Scripture, in, in our American Christian mind. We have saved and not saved. But what Peter is saying to us is what the Bible presents to us, which is that there are three categories, saved, unsaved, and apostate, having come in and then denied Christ. And Peter's saying, don't be, he's screaming like my friends uh, that were scuba diving with me, don't be number three. Don't be number three. You are trampling on the very Christ who offered himself to you in love, and you can never be renewed again to repentance, Hebrews 6. Um, Peter says, to wrap up this point, these people are enslaved by their own actions, verse 19, and they bring destruction upon themselves, verse 12. God will destroy them. Again, it may seem like he's sleeping. It may seem like he's forgotten. It may seem like he doesn't take notice. It may seem like he's blessing their ministry. Even like he approves, they're rich, they're fat, they're happy, like the author of Psalm 73 says. But actually, he's not blessing them at all. He's just taking time and using what they're doing to store up judgment. That's what Peter says. It's a hard word, but it ought to be a good word, a tonic for us. He's giving them time to repent by, by forestalling judgment, but he's also, through their own actions and choices and mentality and deception and enticement and sensuality, he's just storing up condemnation for them. I'm going to skip... God's judgment is inevitable for the sake of time. Ooh, it's a hard point. It's a good point. And I'm going to just move to the, to the last point and finish up. God's judgment is inevitable. It will come. It will happen. As sure as God is sovereign, as sure as God is Savior, he is also judge, and he will tolerate no sin. And he will, he will crush justly all those especially who have come into his fold but as wolves and who have led people astray with false teaching. And how is that done chiefly? By taking people away from Christ, to look inward, to follow their own desires, to do Jesus plus, to try to clean themselves up on their own, to say, hey, it doesn't matter how you live. I think a lot of us, friends, we think, I'm reading a book by James uh, K.A. Smith, I forget the name right now, You Are What You Love, maybe. And just the idea, I think, sort of embedded in a lot of this message here from Peter and to Peter too is the idea that like a lot of us, if we look, James Smith talks about the liturgy of our lives. What's the liturgy of our lives? Okay, the liturgy, the order of our lives, what we emphasize, what we stress, what we spend time on, what we give our hearts to, what we think about, what we feed on. If we actually do an accountant of, what's the word that you use? Uh, uh, audit. <laughs> Thank you. We have some accounts here. If you do an audit of your life, an Im, an Im, a dispassionate, disengaged, objective audit of your life, and you look at the way you spend your time and what you think about and what you true, it will tell you, you spend your resources, all your resources, your money, your time, your talents, your heart, where does your mind go, what do you feed on? We will find, says Jamie, I haven't finished the book yet, 
through the liturgy of our lives that we actually, those of us who say God is most important in our lives, those of us who say, God, you are my treasure, actually we, we will find that we have other treasures that trump God. Okay, we, have, we are actually pursuing the world and we are pursuing other things. <clears throat> and what God died for, what he laid his life down for is to be your treasure and that alone will satisfy. And so this is not just a wake up for a false teacher in here or a false teacher hears this message or for me or any part of me that would want to lead you guys astray or not want to but want to put the, the spotlight on me or any future teachers. It's also for every single one of us a wake-up call to do an audit on our desires and to say, Lord Jesus Christ, by your Holy Spirit, through the liturgy of my life, show me in community, help me to be honest in the word as it speaks to me by it, through faith as I read it, by your Holy Spirit, as I worship, as I go throughout my week, my day, my week, my month, my year, show me where my desires are not in line with, as God said to David, seeking his face. What other things am I seeking? What other pleasures? I'm not saying, God said, if you seek me, and I will satisfy you, and I will give you all else besides. He, is the, he holds all pleasures, Psalm 1611, in his right hand. He invented pleasure. G Satan can't invent a single pleasure. All he can do is take pleasure and pervert it. That's why he has to bait the hook. God, God created sex. God created everything that is good. All that is, is true. Thomas Aquinas, page one, Summa Theologica. All that is, is true. Sin is a cheap imitation. God has all pleasure, and he is our soul's desire, and when we come to him, he will give us all things. But what else are we seeking? Only if we're honest about that is there hope for us, for God, to, and he will. He will restore us. So finishing with God's judgment is inevitable, but point three, it's not inescapable. Quickly, it's not inescapable. You know, I'm, I'm just bumping over a lot of these, but um, Peter mentions Noah Noah warned as he was building this ark for over a century. He warned in his construction and no doubt in his proclamation of God, turn back to God, leave your sinful lifestyle. He preached the gospel as it were. Put your faith in God over and over and over and over again. He sounded the alarm, but nobody listened. But God saved Noah and his family. Lot did the same thing in Sodom and Gomorrah. And we, think, we hear Sodom and Gomorrah and God reigned coals down from the sky and destroyed those cities. We think of Sodom and Gomorrah, we think of their egregious, sexual, homosexual, probably sin, if you look at the text. But Ezekiel says this, he condemns these cities not for their perverse sexuality, which is condemned in the Bible, but he rails against Sodom and Gomorrah, Ezekiel does, he's a prophet, for being, quote, arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy, end quote. Guys, that hits closer to my home, and ought to be a wake-up call for us. Is our life aligned with the ethic of God, with the gospel, with the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, with his call? And if not, let us repent. Peter is sounding the alarm. Don't ignore it to your peril and perish. His word of rescue is one thing, Jesus, his son, and the gospel he brings. There's an article, as I close up, one more article, the first from the New York Times, this one from the Washington Post, this past week about an innocent man serving 17 years in prison. Some of you might have read it. His crime, what was this man's crime for serving 17 years of a sentence he didn't deserve? His crime was that he looked almost exactly like the real suspect. You can get online and look at it. It's uncanny. It's even hard to tell him apart looking straight at him. He looked almost exactly like the guy who almost certainly committed the crime. I think you did. Um, on the cross, 
Jesus became a sin offering for you and for me. If you look to him for your salvation, he took your sin, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, upon himself, into himself, felt it, tasted it, having never committed sin, paid the price because God is just and he's judge. As merciful as God is, he is also just. He cannot excuse sin. Christ became your lookalike. He took the rap for you. He looked just like you on the cross and paid the penalty for your sin. And if you look to him, has washed you completely clean. Like we read, like we sang in the hymn, he's done it once and for all. Book of Hebrews, he's finished it. It's why he's sitting down. Why is there so much talk about Jesus sitting on the throne? Who cares? I'll tell you why. Because a, a king who's sitting, two things. He's finished with his work. It's done. It's complete. There's nothing else you can do to please God, friend. Look to Christ. Hide in him. Abide in him. Live out of his goodness and mercy and the abundance of his obedience and pleasure. He's finished the work. And number two, when a king is sitting, he's ruling. He's reigning. He is using, if you're in him, everything in your life for good. He will work it out. You have the greatest of hope. No matter what pain, no matter what you're going through, no matter what loss, no matter what privation, no matter what confusion, he took care of it. He's reigning. He will return to judge. Be found in him, not in your own perceived goodness when he comes again. This hymn, before the throne of God above, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is, here's the word, satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Y'all, Christ and his gospel and his life can change you, can change me, can change our desires, can change the liturgy of our lives. It can also change the liturgy of an entire culture. It's happened before. You look at Roman culture, it was a sensual culture. It was on the decline. All the marks plus more that we have, the Roman decadent, declining, waning culture had in the 4th and 5th centuries. And here comes Christianity, and for 300 years, for 400 years, it is exploding, small at first, with the hope of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen and reigning and returning Savior. And through living out the gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaiming it day by day in their relationships, that culture went from being a sensual culture to being an ideational culture. And it changed the face of the West from then until now. It can happen again. The history of the church is one of revivals because of this very dynamic, because of Jesus Christ and his power. It can happen with us. It can happen in our culture. May it be, may Christ find us faithful by looking to him and no one else. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. It's a hard word. It's a good word. It's not a happy one, but in the end, in the sort of old comedic classical sense, it is a happy one because it ends well for those of us who hide through no good of our own, who run and hide in Jesus Christ. You looked on him and you pardoned us. And he paid for everything. He did everything. He is reigning. He is ruling. Would our lives be a looking to him and enjoying him and enjoying you, a lives of constant repentance and inviting people, egregious sinners, regular sinners, whatever, hypocrites all, into the life of Christ. Come and see what I have found. Would you make us a people who are revived, whose desires are changed, and who see this culture around us changed? Help us to be faithful. It's going to take time. Would you do it? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.